You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. This is one of those texts in the Bible that is hard to take seriously. Can we just say it? We read this text, 1 John, opening verses of chapter 3, and we're thinking, all right, we like 1 John, God is love, every, you know, this is God shows His love because we've been made children of God, and we're feeling pretty good about that. What love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, that's what we are when Jesus is revealed, we're going to be like Him, and we're feeling pretty good about these things, aren't we? Until we get down to verse 6. And John hits us with, you know, he's kind of distracting us with all this really nice God loves you and you're His children thing. And then he kind of comes back across and just pummels us with this declaration, no one who abides in Him sins. And I think, whoa! (laughs) Like, I'm pretty sure I know Jesus. I've been following Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm trying to be a good Christian and I worship and, and give myself to the means of grace. And it's not just a way to kind of get God to think I'm a swell guy. Like I, I think I'm sincere in loving Jesus, but sometimes I struggle. And sometimes I find sin creeps in and, and that's my, where, where things are. And, I'm, and John says, anyone, no, like no one who abides in him sins. And I, I thought I was living in Jesus, but there may be some things in my life. And how does that square with this text? How do I take this seriously? How does it, like, it doesn't jive with my experience. All right, maybe I can keep reading. I can kind of work through this a little bit. I'll give John the benefit of the doubt. Context is everything. After all, maybe he's going to help me out and kind of help me deal with how my experience and what the Bible says goes together. So I'm going to give him a little more time. But then I get to verse (laughs) 8. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. Any sinners out there? (laughs) Like we're happy with somebody else being like a child of the devil. But, you know, if John's going to call me a child of the devil, I don't feel good about that. Do you? And so I'm reading through this text and I'm thinking, you know, like maybe he just got carried away. And maybe I could just skip on to chapter 4 and that's a lot more pleasant. And there's all this stuff in there about how God loves us and all those kinds of things. And How do I take this seriously, you know? Because as a pastor, if you came into my study and said, hey, you know, pastor, I, I just struggling. There's some stuff and I'm feeling the temptation. I'm having a hard time overcoming that. And if I looked at you and said, well, that just means you're a child of the devil. We we wouldn't have a lot of trust going on, would we? (laughs) You know, what pastor would say something like that? You wouldn't take me seriously. You would either get mad and just storm out, or you would feel condemned and worry, you know, just who knows how that would work emotionally and psychologically. So how do we handle that? When we don't understand, or we're tempted just to skip over to some of the nice parts. It 
It's crucial to remember that skipping over the passages of Scripture we don't understand can be detrimental. The mere fact that we read this one time through and go, wow, that's tough, I don't get it, something else, I like, like let's just go to John 3.16 or something. I can get myself in deep trouble when that happens, if I succumb to that temptation. It means that I miss out on crucial things that God desires to do in my life and in the life of the church. It means that I miss out on a deeper experience of God's perfect love. That's the context here, remember. 1 John is about how God brings our experience of His love to perfection. That's still the topic, it's still the question, it's still the thing that John is desiring to talk about and expound and apply in challenging situations, but nonetheless. And so if we pause and kind of come together as a community and spend some time reflecting on these texts and kind of the logic of it, the context, how this works together, knowing that God is good, knowing that He is trustworthy, can we discover something that benefits us, that even gives us life, something that guards us from death, something that amplifies our experience of His perfect love. And when we do take this text seriously, as hard as that may seem just now, we discover something. We discover this deep reality that just pervades all of Scripture, but especially this one. It's just on the front in this one. And that is simply that children embody the character of their fathers. Children, for John, and elsewhere in Scripture, but it's, it's, magna, it's amplified in this text, children embody always the character of their fathers. John makes this point through a really striking contrast, doesn't he? I mean, you're reading through this and you're noticing, well, we got one thing over here, we got something over here, and those two things are radically different. The word for that is what? Contrast. One thing is not like the other. And the difference for John, the contrast is like everybody's somebody's child, the question is, you know, who's your daddy? <laughs> Whose child? Or who do you belong to? Who's your father? And he talks about the children of God on the one hand and children of the devil on the other hand. Now I know in some circles, like we don't even believe in the devil anymore. So talking about the children of the devil is even harder. But we're going to kind of take this text at face value. We're going to see what's here. We're going to dig in, try to make some observations and understand what John is after here. So you've got the children of God on the one hand. You've got the children of the devil on the other. And in each instance, John talks about how the character of the father shows up in the life of the child. For instance, verse 8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No arguments there? We're good with it. Like we can, something we can agree on, John. <laughs> Like we remember the garden, we remember the fact that Satan comes and is jealous 
of God's favor with Adam and Eve. He wants to have control of what God has entrusted to them. And so tempts them to betray God and everything goes off the rails. So John says, remember this, devil sinning from the beginning. Remember, like In the beginning, God created. And very shortly thereafter, in that frame of reference, the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And so John draws from that, that like if that's the character of the devil, when we see that sort of character emerging in human beings we can deduce that there's a father-child relationship there. Obviously, he's using that as a metaphor. right? This isn't a genetic relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. But the principle for John is, like, the character of the father shows up in the life of the children. You kind of know the children because they embody the character of the father. Over at the beginning of chapter 3, he describes the character of God. The word he uses to describe the character of God is love. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. So you've got this aspect of the Father's character, His love, and you've got this identification of His children. Just before that, he says, you may be sure that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And so again, here's this idea. You've got God in his character. He is loving. He does what he ought to do. And you can tell those who've been born of him because they embody those aspects of his character. Verse 10, the children of God are revealed in this way. Those who do what is right are from God and those who do not. Or, and, and those who love their brothers and sisters, right? Those who don't do what's right are not from God. Those who love their brothers and sisters are from God. Therefore, like doing what is right and embodying the love of God reveals the children of God. So you got the same principle, right? You got a father, you've got the children, and there's consistency of character, whether it's the devil or whether it's God. We're a little uncomfortable with that. Amen? <laughs> you guys are cool with it then, being children. <laughs> like, so, just check it. Right? We may be a little uncomfortable with that kind of language and those stark categories, and we kind of want some middle ground. Wouldn't you love some middle ground? But John doesn't give us middle ground, at least not here. But we've got the structure. We've got the structure. And for John, the crucial difference, right, is whether or not someone has been born of God. We mentioned John 3.16 a moment ago, and this is where the epistle of John, 1 John, sounds a lot like the gospel of John. One of those categories where we talk about being born again in John chapter 3, and here being born of God in 1 John chapter 3. So he says, if, if you know that he is righteous, 2.29, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And he defines a community in those terms. Those who are remember this community has experienced rupture. A group of them has departed and has gone off to chase, chase false messiahs. 
false kings. John says, those of us who are still here, you're not following the false people, doing what's right, you're staying faithful, you're abiding in Christ in this community, children of God. There is, however, for John, evidence that this need to be born of God is a universal thing. Right? He, can, he sees the world in black and white. You've got folks who are born of God and folks who aren't. And it looks like everybody starts out in the aren't category. <laughs> and then when you're born of God, these aspects of His character begin to become aspects of your character. Like God loves and He does what's right. Those who are born of God embody that love and they embody that doing what is right for John. So the reality is like everybody starts out not a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, what are you? Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> so again, these are ways that John talks about like lost and saved. Separate from Christ in Christ. Child of the devil, child of God. That can like and those can Categories, let's not pretend, can be deeply offensive to our modern sensibilities. Like, we don't like that kind of like we'd rather just, hey, he's a great person, hey, she's a great gal. Surely God loves them. And it's just how could you call anyone a child of the devil? Like there's some people, the folks we've seen on the news this week, we're happy to call them children of the devil. But when it's somebody in your family who doesn't love Jesus a little harder to do, isn't it? John employs this literary device of just stunning, striking contrast because he wants to get our attention. He wants to call this in and say, listen, everything depends on what you do with Jesus. Everything. And we're not going to squirrel around and this is real for these folks, right? Because some people they love have said, we're not so sure Jesus is the Messiah anymore. There's somebody around the corner who's got a pretty good story and folks are starting to follow Him and they're saying He's the Messiah. We're going to go check that out. And John has people in his congregation who are going, well, maybe they're right. He says, listen. Abide in Jesus in this community, with the believers, your children of God, and that's like your abiding presence with the Lord in the congregation as evidence of that relationship with Jesus, that's how you abide. And if you abandon the people of God, it makes them, it, it reveals who your Father is. So John wants us to see, and this is crucial, friends. It's crucial for us as we think about our mission. Because there's a lot of people out there who aren't born of God. It's more now in history than maybe ever before. Because the gospel's going forward and it's bearing fruit. And the church is growing and the gospel's getting to places it's never been before. But there are still places the gospel hasn't made it to yet. And guess whose responsibility is to get it there? Only one person raised their hand. Let me try that again. Guess whose responsibility it is to get it there? 
unanimous, folks, all of us. It's possible to grow up in church and still be a child of the devil. You knew that already, though, didn't you? <laughs> Don't look around. It's possible to kind of do all the right things, show up at the right times, serve on some committees, and not know Jesus. Jesus talks about folks like that, doesn't he? Lord, Lord. We visited the sick. We cared for prisoners. We gave the poor a cup of water in your name. And Jesus says, but you didn't. Like, we don't know each other. So, so many things. Like, if we don't take this seriously, we just skip over it. We miss Jesus saying, do you know me? Right? He's the firstborn. He's the Son of God. We heard in chapter 2. Talking about Antichrist in chapter 2, which is false messiah, or people who follow false messiahs as political figures in the first century. Who is the liar? 2.22. But the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Right? So there's this Son-Father relationship between Jesus and the God of Israel. And those who are born of God participate in that relationship and are made like Jesus. And that union with Jesus produces hope. And that hope, that desire to be with Him and like Him produces action. All who have this hope in Him, chapter 3, verse 3, purify themselves just as He is pure. The hope is to be like Him when He is revealed. You know what's interesting about this text? A lot of times when we talk about when Jesus comes back, we're very, like the way we talk about the return of Jesus is very shaped by Paul. Paul talks about Jesus coming, doesn't he? When he comes, at his coming, the dead in Christ will be raised. When he comes, he's going to take all the kingdom, like the kingdoms of all his authority and present it to the Father at his coming. Notice John talks about the second coming of Jesus, but he doesn't talk about the coming of Jesus. Talks about the revelation of Jesus. And it's almost like he's already here. <laughs> Wait a second. You just can't see him. John says, when he is revealed, it's almost like actors on a stage. You ever been to a, a theater, right? And the first act comes up and the curtains get drawn back and everyone's in their places. And that's the image here. When he is revealed, we will be like, he's not far away. After all, you're abiding in him, aren't you? And you don't abide in someone who is distant from you. You abide in someone who is near to you, who is close to you. And this is Jesus' relationship to you. He's drawn you to himself. He's made you his own. He's the Son of God. You're the children of God. Abide in him. And one day, that deep, integrated, abiding relationship that now feels invisible and we can't see and we can't grasp Him even though His body's been raised from the dead and Thomas got to lay hands on Him that one time, but we haven't had that opportunity because His body is presently enthroned at the right hand of God. But He's not far off. 
And one day he's going to be revealed. The curtain on the stage is going to be drawn back. And when that happens, we'll be like him. You want to be like him? Do you have that hope? Hope. All who have this hope take sin seriously and purify themselves as he is pure. The character of the Father is embodied in Jesus. And he wants to share that with his brothers and sisters. You see how this text, like that idea, just permeates so many different aspects of this text. The children embody the character of their fathers. Again and again and again. Whether it's God or not. And everyone starts out in the not column. <laughs> and everyone needs to be brought into the family of God. Everyone. And if we have, like if we've experienced that, we give thanks to God. It's not the end of the journey. It's the first step on the lifelong road to embodying the purity of His character and his perfect love and calling our neighbors and the nations to come to him to repent to surrender to trust him to experience hope can I say how badly like every time I read the word hope in the Bible I'm reminded of the name of this community <laughs> In the name of the founder of this, like not the founder, but the person who the community is named after. Hope Hall was a Methodist circuit rider. Never made it this far as far as we know. But the community, well the church was named after him and then the community took its name from there. But every time I read the word hope in the Bible, I think like, like, we have hope in our name, brothers and sisters. Like, it's on the sign out front. It's on the website. Like, we're hope people. And then I'd say, like, what does it look like to be hope people in a world where there are still people who are children of the devil? Like, what does that look like? What does that look like to be hope people in a world where parents are passing their babies across barbed wire to soldiers so that they don't get made slaves by a dictatorial government? Like, what does it look like to be hope people? And man, I just couldn't help this week but think, like, I'm going to go to my, like, I work at a church, I'm a pastor. And I got colleagues on the other side of the world who I don't even know whose names are on a list and somebody's going door to door with an AK-47 looking for them. And I come strolling across the parking lot with my Bible in my hand in my study with my books to write my sermon. So the rest of y'all who show up in your cars and trucks on Sunday morning 
with no hindrances whatsoever, can hear the Word of God, worship Jesus publicly with no fear whatsoever. Anybody experienced fear this morning on the way? Not from the rain. That's not what I'm talking about. Other things. I didn't experience any fear this morning on the way over here. What does it look like to be a people of hope to embody the character of God in a world where literally Christians' only hope is being raised from the dead because they're about to be martyred. Can that jar us out of our complacency? I mean, can it really? Will it? If it doesn't, I don't know what will. This week... (laughs) Other weeks, I take it for granted that I work in the church. This week, I didn't. This is life and death. Life and death. The mission is that the world may be born of God. And that starts with each of us. Am I embodying the character of my Father? Well, like we always embody the character of our Father. The question is, what sort of character do we embody? And if the Father of Jesus is my Father, am I increasingly embodying His character? More and more and more. Now, we still have a question. Like, the question of sin and believers. We kind of wrestled with this big, like, child of the devil language, but what about this de- declaration of God that, like, children of God don't sin? Like, what do we do with that? Now, it's crucial to remember that it's dangerous to take a verse out of a letter or a sermon, one or two sentences, and sort of throw them on the internet and just no context, here's a thing. Contextless information is easily misunderstood. And everything in the Bible comes with a context. And so I remember the first week we started reading 1 John together a few weeks ago that John wrote this, my little children, I'm, this is chapter 2 verse 1. So everything in context, we're going to take this in context. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And we thought, man, that's intense. (laughs) Who knew what was coming in chapter 3? And then he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and we kind of take a sigh of relief. We know John wants us to grow in holiness. We know he wants us to be transformed. But he kind of creates a safety net where like if you stumble, if you fall, Jesus will catch you. If anyone does sin, because sometimes believers do, We have an atoning sacrifice, Jesus. Right, so John has already, before we get to chapter 3, way back at the beginning of the letter, he's already sort of carved out a more nuanced articulation of this. Right? The goal is for Christians to grow in holiness. If someone stumbles into sin, Jesus' blood is here for you. What he wants the church to avoid, whether it's 1st century or 21st century, is that 
Hey, Jesus' blood is here for me, so what I do with my life doesn't matter. Hey, Jesus' blood is here for me, so I can knock my kids around. Hey, Jesus' blood is here for me, so I can be deceptive at work to try to get that promotion. Hey, I can double-cross that. After all, I can pray that prayer and get my forgiveness, and if anyone sins, you have an atoning sacrifice. What he's trying to do is help them stop abusing the blood of Jesus taking it for granted. Like, this is a safety net. This is a, hey, (laughs) like, the goal is a transformed character. The goal is embodying the character of God the Father. If something comes along, and if occasionally you fall and stumble, Jesus doesn't give up on you. But that's not the standard. That's not the regular pattern. That's That's not the normal Christian life. For John, a life marked by consistent sin is not the normal Christian life. And if a life is marked by consistent sin, it should raise red flags. That's, so he gives us that. And so everything we read in the rest of the letter has to be understood in light of that. Chapter 3 is a watch for the red flags kind of chapter. <laughs> okay? Okay? And sometimes when we're talking about watching for red flags, we get a little over-the-top hyperbolic. doesn't mean it's not true. It means we are trying to provoke people to actually do some self-reflection. Can I amplify this in a way that provokes people who are thinking about walking out the door to think twice? You see what he's after here. And so when I preach a sermon on text like that, I think, can I amplify this in a way that gets all of us to think twice about God's purposes for our lives and not to take for granted what He wants to do. What does He want to do? He wants to reproduce His character in every person on the face of the planet, even the Taliban, believe it or not. What John wants us to see is that love for Jesus and self-indulgent sin are mutually exclusive. Like I can't give myself to sin, whatever it is, and say I love Jesus at the same time. And in that moment, when temptation comes, if I opt for myself and my preferences and my sin, I'm saying, Jesus, I'm going to put my love for you on the shelf. Not, I don't love you right now. I love myself more than you. I love my sin more than you. And what John is trying to do is use this, this stunning, shocking language to help us see that we cannot love, we can't pursue sin and pursue Jesus simultaneously. Like you, it's one or the other. It, one or the other. If I'm going to pursue my sin, I have to stop pursuing Jesus. And if I pursue Jesus, it means I cannot in this moment be pursuing Him. And that means that my character is going to increasingly embody the character of the Father. 
because I'm going along, experiencing temptation, whatever it is, like pick your favorite sin and fill in the blank. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's slander, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's covetousness, maybe it's something else. Like You let the Holy Spirit tell you that. Going along and boom, there it is. And whew, I could do it. I could let those words come out of my mouth. I could let those covetous inclinations come into my heart. I'm feeling, there's that moment, it's right there. In this moment, am I going to say, Jesus, I'm going to stop loving you so that I can love whatever that thing is I don't have that I want, or my anger, or my fear, or my desire to say this thing that will hurt that person. John wants us to see that those are two different characters and you don't get both at the same time. He acknowledges earlier in the letter the reality that believers sometimes fall. And thanks be to God, there is grace when it happens. But it doesn't change the fact that the general trajectory of the believer's life is to be growing in the direction of the character of God revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ. And until we understand that is the heart of Christianity and the purpose of the gospel, we have not even begun to reckon with what the Bible says about Jesus. If we think that Christianity is about showing up a couple of times and praying a prayer and saying the magic words, we, we may just be children of the devil. And you know what? That's what people think about us. I had lunch with a guy this week, and his mind was blown that I thought someone could live a despicable life, meet Jesus just before they die and be saved, and that a generally good person who gave a lot of money to charity and did other things who denied Jesus would be lost. And the reason he thought it was weird is because he, and this was a quote, he said, like, you can say the magic words at the end of your life and all of your unrighteousness just goes away. And this is where I said, no, 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 it's not magic words, <laughs> right? But that's the, somehow, the American church has given the world the perception that if you say the right words, if you recite the formula, then all your sin just goes away. And God says, come on in, pearly gates all over the place. That's a false gospel, friends. That's a false gospel. We're responsible for that. To some degree. If we think the gospel is about showing up when we feel like it, getting a little bit of Jesus at the start of the week, get the kids to Sunday school so they can get Jesus from there and everything's good. It's not Bible, Bible Christianity. Like this is immersion into the life of God. John gives us an image of the Christian life that is immersed in the life of God. Where every moment of every day is offered to Jesus. I belong to you. You are my Lord. I want nothing but what you want for me. And when those things happen, when I feel pulled away from you, like literally, it has to be slaughtered.
And John uses this over-the-top language, this expressive language, this amplified language to help us see just how serious this is. John's saying to the church then and the church now, like, don't play around with this stuff. Don't fool around with it. It's detrimental. And so I start thinking about how does this work out in the different parts of my life? How does it work out in my role as a pastor? Helping the church and leading the church in a way that we embrace the deep, transformative power of God that He wants to work in our lives. How does it work out in my home? With my children. How do I help my children experience this deep, all-consuming, transformative power of God that He wants to put into their lives? Because I'll tell you, friends, like we've been talking about spiritual fatherhood, but all of this translates into biological fatherhood. Dads, ladies, tune out for a second. Dads, your sons and your daughters will embody your character. The spiritual principle is biologically true. I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about... (laughs) how my kids learn things. And I'm thinking about how I see sin in their lives. I'm like, I don't like what I see in their lives. And then I'm reminded that I read this other pastor one time and he said, if you see something you don't like in their lives, you probably need to go repent for it because who do you think they learned it from? Children embody the character of their father for better or worse. And so then I'm thinking like, how do I put patterns into my life that I actually want my kids to imitate? Do my kids see me read my Bible? Still talking to the dads. Moms, don't sweat it right now. Dads, do my kids see me read my Bible? If I want my kids to love the Bible and they never see me read my Bible, they will not love the Bible. Don't be surprised when they go to college and stop going to church if you never read the Bible with your kids. Dads. I want my kids to see me honor their mother because the way my sons see women will be shaped by the way they see me treat their mom. Still talking to dads. I want my kids to see me worship in this room. Because if my kids don't see me worship in this room, I should never expect them to actually do that themselves. But if they see their father, and this is the thing, friends, let me say this. I'm kind of, I'm going to get up on a little bit of a soap. I'm going to stop preaching and start meddling for just a second, so get ready. The church has eked by, not this church, lots of churches have eked by because a lot of mamas and grandmamas have tried to whip everybody into shape and get them to church on Sunday morning. Ladies, thank you. Seriously. And sometimes you got a husband and two kids, but on Sundays it feels like you got three. Because getting him out of bed and getting his to church 
is harder than the four-year-old. Amen, ladies? Amen. Men, take responsibility for the spiritual life of your families. Stop messing around! Just quit. Messing around. <laughs> if you play more golf or hunt more than you worship Jesus, expect the same thing with your kids. Expect them to pick Jesus over the I mean, expect them to pick the woods over worship if that's what they see in your life. And I can't help every like I read this and I it's again and again and again. It's you have a father, and whatever happens in your life tells me who your father is. And that's true whether it's your father in heaven or your father in your home. And if I want my kids to embody the character of their Father in heaven, they better see that character in me, their Father on earth. Like, this is not theory. This is not hypothetical. This is not, hey, we'll give it a try one day when we get the time or get in the mood. If my kids hear me say, I got to work overtime so that we can have this stuff instead of going to church and worshiping with the people of God. They will embody that when they are grown. John uses over-the-top, stunning, striking language that's very hard for us to take seriously if we don't pause and just take it seriously, even if we don't like it. And he does it because he's trying to jar the people of God out of their slumber and out of our complacency. And we live in a world, friends, <laughs> let me put it this way, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity. When was the last time you heard anybody say anything about faithful masculinity? We live in a world where the enemy knows the principle. Children embody the character of their fathers. Father in heaven or father in the home. And if we can take that and make it toxic and hide what it looks like to be faithful, and being a real man is being a tough guy and being a real man is driving a truck and being a real man is going to do whatever you want with your friends whenever you want it or golf course or like fill in the blank. Real man is embodying the character of the Father in heaven. That's what it means to be a real man. And it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Because it means killing sin. It means killing sin. What John wants to see, what I want to see, is faithful embodiment of the character of the Father. Faithful fatherhood. Faithful masculinity. It's what this world needs, brothers and sisters, as much as anything. And that is not to denigrate, like, again, ladies, you've put up with a lot. What does it look like for us to step up together and say, we're going to take this seriously and we're going to take responsibility to make sure 
that Jesus is honored. So that when my kids are grown, when they're not children anymore, they won't be children of the devil. Children of God. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.